So the reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and it's verse 4 to 16. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again I saw a vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, from whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this, is, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. John, John, do you want to come up? Um, we're just going to pray for John. Um, we believe that the Bible that we just heard from is the living Word of God. The Bible says that the Word of God is, is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God, much like my voice coming to you guys right now is breathed out by, by, by me. This is God's voice being breathed out to us, and we need help to understand it, and John needs help to teach it. So uh, if you're a Christian, just put out your hand towards John. We're going to pray for him uh, right now. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed your purposes to us. You've revealed your plan of salvation for us. You've revealed all your wisdom to us in the scriptures. We thank you that it is your word that is unchanging, that is perfect, that is alive, that will help us, that will guide us, that will point us to you. Lord, may nothing that we do this morning take us anywhere else except to the cross of Jesus. Father, I pray for my brother John. Thank you for him. Thank you for his, uh, his servant-heartedness. Thank you for his love for you. Lord, we pray right now that you would be with him, you would strengthen him, you would bless all the preparation he's put into this, that we might hear directly from you this morning. Lord, would John decrease so that you might increase. Strengthen him, Lord, and may we be encouraged. In your name, amen. Thanks, mate. Um, have you, I don't know if you remember, but there's this cartoon uh, where Bugs Bunny is on a baseball team and he plays all the positions. So like it kind of, he's playing these like big, rough, bad guys and the announcer comes on. He's like, there's been a slight change to today's lineup. Uh, the pitcher will be played by Bugs Bunny. Left field will be played by Bugs Bunny. And it kind of goes on to roll in the positions. But that's what I kind of feel like today. The difference between that analogy and, and, and what's going on here is today's not about me. So... Um, if you haven't done yet, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 4. Um, if you're new, uh, this is week six of our series in Ecclesiastes, um, and it's been an absolute delight to our souls, hasn't it? Yeah, you can laugh at that. It's, 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 uh, you'll you'll kind of, if, if you are new, you'll see that this is not the easiest book to be in, um, but um, it's important. Um, if you have been around, uh, you, you're lucky because this week we're not talking completely about like death and destruction and justice. So hopefully it'll be a little bit, a little bit lighter. Um, not not completely uh, lighthearted, but um, yeah, the wisdom literature in general uh, in in this part of the Bible, um, it, it, it isn't the easiest to be in. Um, so in a way, we're not trying to drag our feet as we get through it. And if you're thinking, man, I kind of can't wait to get to like the Sermon on the Mount. Um, let me encourage you to, to still pay close attention to what the preacher in this book has to say because it's, it's important. Because as, as Andrew said, this, this has been breathed out by God for you to consume, for it to teach you and to instruct you. And, and what this book 
says is, is a really short, kind of fleeting, kind of temporal life. Cool. Um, in this book, we're confronted by the wisdom of the preacher or the teacher or the professor. All of these are kind of equally valid translations of Kohelet, um, which is literally translated as Ecclesiastes. Um, we're listening to the wisdom of Kohelet. He's the pundit. He's, he's the one who brings profound uh, insight to bear on the issues of life as he confronts them. Um, so this individual, is, is, he's conducting a, a search. Um, he's, he's ransacking the world, trying to solve the riddle of life. Um, he, he's exercising this, this wisdom largely within the framework of secular thinking. And every so often we see him kind of punch above the clouds that are under the sun and brings this kind of divine wisdom to, to bear on this kind of earthly analysis. And this, this groping of meaning that we see him doing, it's being conducted not in a library or a university or a study, but actually out on the, the real kind of dirty streets of life. Um, he's... he's um, you can imagine him in, on the streets of Belfast and you bump into him. He's, he's frequenting the cafes that you go to. He's observing people. He's observing life. He might get a job with you in, in, in your place of work for a little while. You might bump into him uh, when you're out enjoying the city at night in a club or a pub. It's, it's, the point is he, he's, this is where he's gotten his material from real life. And the issues that he addresses, he, we see him sometime overstate them in order to bring them more graphically to the, to the face and the recollection of his readers. There's, there's this energy to what he's doing um, which conveys just how serious he really is. And at the heart of, of all this, this search, he's asking really one question. Can there be any real and lasting purpose to our life if dust is our destiny? So he said this last week. He says, all are from dust, and to dust all return. So if dust is our destiny, can there be any real lasting meaning and purpose to what we do here? He uses this phrase, under the sun, over and over again. Back at the the beginning in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, "I I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. So under the sun is the, this kind of this created world and the temporal earth, time and space that, that we seem to be trapped inside of, um, uh, the creation kind of apart from creator. And he says everything there or here is vanity it, or it's meaningless. It's, the word is literally hevel. Hevel is this, this grasping of a vapor or smoke. Like if I blew out one of these candles, the smoke would come up and you can see it, but you can't grasp it. So Kohelet's uh, central truth so far is that uh, natural man, finding his own resources, will never find any real meaning in his own existence. That, that everything he finds, all he does, even the, the things that seem better than others in the meantime, end up to be hevel. It's like chasing after the wind. And we're given uh, two reasons for this. Um, Lucas uh, talked about this kind of over the last two weeks. Firstly, that our existence is circumscribed, it's, it's restricted to the limits of God's sovereignty. So, so this means that nothing happens without God ordaining it, that there's a time for everything and it's decreed, a time for this, a time for that. Um, nothing happens without God saying, that's okay. There, there's a time appointed for everything. And In fact, that uh, for, for man, he's born when God decides and he dies when God decrees, which means that there's nothing that natural man can do to change these circumstances, that we're inside this temporal, time and space, ordained world. In that kind of way, do you see how everything's hevel? Um, secondly, we, we learn that there's a contradiction with, within humans ourselves. So in verse 11 of chapter 3, uh, it says that God has made the world beautiful. And, and we of all creatures actually see that beauty. We actually recognize it. And in his handiwork, we can see that it's beautiful, but we're still dissatisfied in the meantime. And, and the reason for that is, is it's told that, that God has placed eternity in man's heart. So even the good, beautiful things of this world don't satisfy us because there's eternity in our heart. Augustine says, um, the heart of man is restless. I think you all understand that. And it will only cease to be restless when it learns to find rest in God. Is life meaningful or is it meaningless? Um, for, for such an old book, that's quite a contemporary search, isn't it? Like, like 
it's not hard to find men and women who, who in their heart of hearts are trying desperately to unscramble this question and trying to make meaning of it all. Why are we here? What, to what purpose in the end? Like if, if once you're dead and you're dust, if you could look back and you can see like what was it all about? Like all the getting up and out of bed and going to work and working hard and all the bill pain, all the planning, what, to what purpose in the end is it? Lovely question, isn't it? So we, we keep uh, trucking through and observing these delightful insights. Chapter four, it's, it's not the easiest of chapters to uh, try to analyze and, and sit down in a real orderly fashion. Um, as we said, wisdom literature in general, it, it just isn't easy to tackle. It's not like the book of Acts that we just came out of. It's narrative, and you can see what Paul did, and, and just we need to do that. Um, um, but we're going to do our best to try to tackle it all. Kohelet's uh, not a big fan of clarity, as you've seen. Um, but I think we can assume that he, it's because he doesn't want to be. Like, it's, it's because the kind of truth that he's teaching is the kind of truth that only comes from grappling with it, from, uh, from, from grappling with the hard things of life. The kind of truth he's teaching is the kind of truth that you can only lay hold of once you've thought about it, and then you step back, and then you rethink about it, and then you re-rethink about it. Um, his enigmatic style and structure, um, they seem to be like a barrier to understanding at first, don't they? Like, like just say what you're trying to say. Like, what, make it simplify it, make it easier, make it quicker for us to understand. Um, but as you continue to read, this, this enigmatic style and structure themselves re- reveal that with hard work, they're actually part of the learning process as well. That, that the, the beauty and the, the truth doesn't taste as good without the grappling. So hang in there, like keep, keep digging. Um, as I studied chapter four, um, uh, I've read various commentaries, I've listened to a few different sermons, and what I found is there's, there's no real consensus to the, the central kind of unity uh, or theme of the chapter. So some commentators say that the theme is about companionship. Um, others say that the theme is about toiling, about working. Um, others trace out and maintain that concept of oppression that you see at the beginning all throughout it. And in a way, yeah, like there, you, you, we do see them all in there. And, but what, what I think is, is actually more likely is Kohela is resuming his, his observation on Hevel and as it simply relates to, relates to a number kind of different areas of our life. So you have these sobering themes of injustice and oppression, uh, themes of envy and loneliness and politics. And, and these are all features in life that all have their own respective Hevel, um, this meaninglessness under the sun. But the preacher is he's, he's trying to help lead us through the haze of it all and hopefully avoid some of the folly and to help us enjoy life a little bit more. Okay? Let's pray again before we move on. Uh, Father, um, we will stop every five minutes to pray if we need to um, because we know that this book just can't be understood, can't be pushed into our hearts uh, because of what I say. Um, but only because of what your Spirit does in us, Lord. So we ask you, Spirit, to guide us. Um, guide my words, open hearts, Lord. Teach us um, so that we can see you, Jesus, more clearly. Amen. Um, verse 4 says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. This is the, the kind of difficult parts of wisdom literature because he kind of seems to be contradicting himself. Um, uh, because obviously the Bible commends hard work. Um, even Go back all the way to the beginning in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. We see that we got, God takes man, Adam, and he places, his, places him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To, to work it, to take care of it, to be a, 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 a garden, what's it, what do you call it? Gardener, that's it. <laughs> I was going to say garden tender, ten, tendener, but he places him there to work. He's, we're created to work unto the Lord. It's, it's something that we'll do forever. It's, it's, it's something that eventually we will enjoy fully outside the, the curse of sin. But one of Kohelet's main uh, topics throughout the book that we see is this toiling. It's, it's work and labor and its relation to man and the meaning of life. And he observes that there's, that that 
so work is a gift from God for us to enjoy, but there's also a cancer that can eat right through man's labor and achievement, and this cancer is called envy. The, the Hebrew word here is more literally jealousy, and which, which can either be a good thing or a bad thing. So in the Bible, we see two kinds of relationships where jealousy is, is a good thing. So you, you see this in the divine human relationship between God and us. So we're told that God is, is a jealous God. And you can go back and listen to the Sermon on Jealousy in our uh, Attributes of God series. But in a nutshell, this is a good thing for, for us and him. Because he's good, because he's perfect, because he's holy, because he's the only one that's worthy of our praise. He's, he's jealous for it in a good way, in a holy and a righteous way. And it's actually good for you that he is. Um, there's uh, also a positive side to jealousy in a, a marital relationship. So you see this in Numbers 5, Proverbs 6, and other places, that there's this good and holy jealousy that a man should have for his wife and a wife should have for his, 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 her husband. Um, because you've entered into this marital covenant relationship that means that you are for each other and no one else. So there's a, a good and holy like, jealousy for your, your spouse's love in that. But the preacher isn't really talking about those kinds of relationships. He's, he has this opinion that, that toil and success and work and what you get out of it were actually a result of that they are driven by nothing less than jealousy and envy and rivalry between neighbors. And he labels that kind of work hevel. It's meaningless. Uh, one commentator puts it like this. Uh, in Kohelet's experience... Uh, man appears to be incapable of working or achieving anything without striving frantically just to do better than somebody else. Now, uh, remember that, that even the teacher, he's already taught us that, that labor, that toiling is indeed a gift from God, that toil and work is to be enjoyed, and that God can actually even bring some level of satisfaction into your life because of it. So in chapter 2, verse 24, says, he says that, He's found that there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And then chapter 3, verse 13, he says uh, the same thing. I perceive that there's nothing better uh, than, them for to be, than for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that they should eat and drink and take pleasure in their toil. And he says that this is God's gift to man. So it's a good, it's a gift, but he says, however, an envious spirit can destroy the very gift that God has given you. So the desire to make more money than your competitor, uh, the envy to make a name for yourself bigger than that of your competitor, can actually destroy the very blessing of work and achievement. So this, this good gift of God that we're meant to enjoy and take pleasure from, most of us ruin it by merely working out of envy and to do better than other people. His conclusion is this, that if you're going to approach work in that way, you've absolutely reduced it to hevel. You've ruined it. It's like chasing the wind. It's like trying to catch the wind now. And really, um, how long can you stay at the top anyways? You know, like, um, there's always something new. There's always something that somebody has that you don't have. There's always someone that's probably better at your job than you are. And it's this never-ending cycle like everyone, I know you've all, you've all felt it. We experience it every day, uh, constantly comparing your life with those around you. It's, it's exhausting. It's, it's, there's ultimately no enjoyment in it. Brian Borgman says that ultimately, what's the point in being on top in a death row cell anyway? Like Kohelet says, we're all going to be dust anyways. Like what's the, what's the work in, and keeping up with the Joneses, what's the point anyways? He then gives us two Proverbs in verses 5 and 6. Um, the first one seems to be a quotation uh, from Proverbs in all likelihood that ends up being qualified by the second one. So they go together. They help explain each other. Uh, verse 5 seem, seems to be a, a rebuke to those who might overreact to what he just said, his observation on toil and envy. And, and verse 6 is a proverb that ends up qualifying it in effect uh, both extremes of, of overwork and laziness. So uh, he says, this is the best way forward. It's, it's better to live like this rather than that. And so verse 5 says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Um, I think this is a proverb, uh, a quotation of Proverbs uh, chapter 6, verse 9, uh, sorry, verse 10 and 11, which says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. 
This, this uh, folding of the hands is a picture of laziness, uh, of the sluggard who refuses to do any work and as, as a result is impoverished by his own laziness. Um, so, so this person is, is listening to Kohelet's teachings on toil and envy and says, I hear what you're saying and you're right. Like it's a dog-eat-dog world. All we're trying to do is, is be better than other people and I'm not going to have any part of it. So he, he sits back and he folds his hands and he refuses to do any work at all which is a, a complete overreaction to what the preacher has just said, um, and he's rebuking it here. Because what you see happens to this sluggard is he eventually consumes his own flesh. It's, it, he's, it, it means that his, con- his condition has been analyzed as self-cannibalizing. His, his laziness will end up consuming him. So the preacher is using this proverb to, to put his adverse comments in uh, that he just that he just made about work and toil in the proper perspective, okay? So certainly work is frustrating. It can be driven by meaningless rivalry of merely keeping up with the Joneses. But he goes on to say that only the fool thinks that he can get by without doing any work at all. Um, The second proverb in verse 6 says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. One handful of, uh, of rest or with rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. Um, this, this proverb might be a quotation as well. Um, but he seems to have adapted it. So it's, it's very similar to uh, these three proverbs. Uh, proverbs 15, verse 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than a great treasure with trouble with it. Proverbs 16.8 says, better as a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. And Proverbs 17.1 says, better is a dry morsel with quiet or with peace than an elaborate feast accompanied by strife. Do you see the, the balance between uh, life and labor and peace that he's making? Especially when, when he says this between these two extremes of working and striving and keeping up with the Joneses and doing completely nothing at all. And... Kohelet's, he's showing us how to enjoy the labor uh, as a gift from God. He says, don't be consumed with envy and rivalry as a, and as a result, just work your, your life away because you want to uh, be better or have a little bit more money or just be a little bit better off. Um, but also, don't turn around and stay at home and just sit on your butt all day long. <laughs> the way to really enjoy work in this life that God has given you is to balance your labor with rest. Like he's saying something very, very simple here. Take a day off. Um, don't be consumed with your work, with building and building and thinking about what's next and scheming and planning. Like take a break. Rest. Turn, turn off from your work. Remember the Sabbath. The Lord, uh, uh, he himself uh, sets, in, sets us uh, an example in this. Like he decides to rest. I think it's probably a good idea that we do as well. His ideas are good. A handful of quietness is better than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Um, he, he's, you see how he's contrasting quietness with toil and striving? A good synonym for, for quietness here is contentment, that peaceful contentment. The quiet person is, is, is peaceful and composed. Rather than always striving for more, um, they are satisfied already. And this contrast is reinforced by the difference between having a single handful and having two hands full. The person with, with two hands full is a two-fisted consumer, um, always grabbing as much as, as they can, always grabbing for more. But, but as we're told, sometimes less actually is better. Like sometimes less is more. The quiet person has found this right balance, haven't they? Okay, their hands are not folded like a fool, not doing anything. He's working hard enough to have a decent handful of what he needs in life, but that's, an, that's enough for them. Um, they, they don't demand more and keep asking and, and keep grabbing. They just accept what God has given them. I have a friend who um, has been in this kind of stopgap job for a while, and it's, it's not in the realm of work that she wants to be in, and it's, it's brought a lot of uh, stress and anxiety into her life and into their marriage. And it's been a really hard time for them. And she saw this other job that's actually in the area that, that she wants to work in. So she thought, okay, maybe it's time to transition. She applied for this job and got offered a job uh, that's in the area that she wants to be in. But, 
the thing with this job is she would be making a little bit less than, than this other job. And, and her question was like, what do I do? Like, we might be a little bit less well-off financially. And Kohelet's advice to her is take the job. Like, don't stress so much and be anxious. Like, be, take, work, work, have a little bit less, have one handful with peace and contentment and quietness than two hands full of striving and working. And the preacher goes on uh, in verses 7 and 12 to give us the example of lonely, uh, the hevel of loneliness. So, verse 7, let's read it. Again, I saw that I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So he looks again under the sun, and he sees Hevel. He sees vanity. He's, he's looking at a person who has no companion, and he has no one to share his life with. And he, he, he specifically points out that this person doesn't have a son or a brother, which means that he didn't have anyone to leave an inheritance to. Um, he says, there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he sounds like the person with two hands full, doesn't he? Um, striving after the wind, never resting, um, constantly toiling, never satisfied. But we're told that, what's the point? Because when he dies, um, all of his riches, all the things that he's been working for, um, he doesn't even have anyone to leave them to. This, this workaholic miser, the, the saddest part of the story is he's working so hard for ultimately nothing that he never even stops to ask himself this question. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Who am I working so hard for? He would say, it's not me. I'm not satisfied. Um, and it's also not for anyone else. I don't have a, anyone to even leave this stuff to. Um, I, I'm working hard. I'm successful. Uh, I'm doing really well for myself. But what's the point? He's working so hard that he, he never stops to ask this question even. We say this person is, is married to their work. John Paul Getty uh, was an American oil tycoon. Uh, in 1957, Fortune magazine named him the richest living American. Nine, year, nine years later, he was named the world's richest private citizen. So he, wasn't, he didn't have all this wealth from an inheritance. He did it from hard work. The world's richest private citizen. Um, as death, he was worth more than uh, $6 billion, which in today's money would be $26 billion he was worth. Um, he, was, he was an avid collector of art and antiquities. Uh, his collection uh, formed the basis of the J. Paul Getty Museum in, in Los Angeles. He established the J. Paul Getty Trust in 1953, which is now the world's wealthiest art institution with an, with an endowment of $6.9 billion. Um, he was known for his hard work ethic, um, he worked himself to the bone his entire life. He, he boasted at the age of 74 that he still often worked 16 to 18 hours a day. Um, Getty was married and divorced five times, and his, his appetite for women and sex continued long into his 80s. He sounds like this person in this verse, isn't it? Hardworking but never satisfied. He had it all. He had all the money, he had all the sex, he had all the women. He had all the fame, anything he wanted. And this is what he said on his deathbed. I've never known love or even what it means to have a friend. Hevel. What, what's it all for? The picture Kohelet's painting for us is a lonely life is a sad life. No matter how much money a person makes, no matter how successful you are, it's Hevel. And the, the kind of Hevel that's being pictured here uh, in this passage is actually really a self-induced Hevel. Um, and Kohela is quick to point out that this particular type of Hevel under the sun um, actually has a remedy. So not all the Hevel that we see has a remedy, um, but this one does, and it's called companionship. Um, if, do you notice these proverbial better than statements he's making in verses 6, verses 9, and verses 13? Okay, under the sun, it's all hevel, but even in the meantime, this is better than this. 
these like many remedies in the, in the meantime. So we've seen that work is good. It's a gift from God. You are made to do it. Um, it's it's uh, what you're created for, but there's, there's much that can spoil it. Okay, the envious spirit, this frantic competitiveness ruins the joy of work. And the remedy is what? To, to balance your, your work with rest. And loneliness and being married to your job can also ruin this gift. And the remedy is simple. Share your life and your labor with people. And work can be a pleasure, but not if we pursue it for our own selfish, selfish purposes. And to find pleasure in work, we need to ask ourselves the question in verse 8 and come up with the right answer. For whom am I toiling? Okay, not, not for myself, the Christian says, but for the glory of God and for the good of other people, including the people I love and the family of God. Okay, otherwise, you will end up like John Paul Getty, maybe not with as much money, um, but you'll have two hands full, but no one to enjoy it with. All hevel. Pursue companionship, be in community. This is, this is how you were designed and what you were designed for. Okay, so uh, turn over to Genesis 1, chapter, tw- or, uh, chapter 1, verse 26. We see that Adam uh, was created out of community and for community. The God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created him in his own image, in the image of this perfect Trinitarian communal God he made him. And he didn't stop there. He said, male and female, he created them. Not just one, but multiples. And verse 28 says, and God blessed them. You're not made to go at it alone. God, God says it's not good that man should be alone. You are made to live and work in togetherness, not loneliness. And when work is kept within these bounds, its, it's benefits are shared with others, then work actually has worth again. And the way to mitigate the hevel of toil is to share your life and your labor with someone. Be in community. Don't do it all alone. And Kohelet goes on to elaborate why this partnership is better than personal isolation. Verse 9, he says that, that they have a good reward for their toil. Um, in other words, it's, it's, there's more profit in, uh, in, in our labor when our labor is shared, which can mean a couple different things. Certainly, it means that you can make more money when you work together, but I think he's saying something much more than that. He's saying that uh, when you share your labor with someone, um, there's a more satisfactory outcome. Like, it's simply more enjoyable because you've done it, you've shared the, the labor with people. He goes on to talk about the time of need. Uh, in the time of need, a companion is absolutely invaluable. He mentions this fall in verse 10, which could be taken as either literal or figurative. Um, so to, to fall while traveling in the ancient world could be hazardous or maybe fatal. Um, to fall in the Proverbs has more moral connotations. But either way, a companion uh, can help in both of those situations. It's, it's actually the loner is the one who's in real trouble when he falls. Verse 11, uh, we see that there's also comfort in having a companion. Again, this picture of traveling in the ancient world, uh, when the cold sets in, it it can be oppressive. Um, But with the closeness of of a companion, there can be warmth. Verse 12, there's also safety in companionship. This is an obvious one, isn't it? Like not much has changed since the ancient world. If I'm walking down a dodgy alleyway, um, I'm going to be more safe if I have a friend with me. Um, a man, uh, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, uh, two will withstand him. A three-fold cold cannot be broken. So two, you're not made to be alone. You're made to be uh, more than that. Two is better. Three is even better. There's strength in numbers, companionship, community, whether in oppression or toil or life in general, may redeem intolerable situations as well as give meaning and purpose. You see how he's, he's teaching us in, in real life this wisdom is, is for your real life. It's, he's not saying, um, just stick your head in the sand, wait for the storm to pass by, and then everything will be great. No, he wants, you, he wants you to stop. He wants you to think deeply, to feel deeply about the hevel under the sun. And then he wants to help instruct us uh, to avoid as much of that hevel as possible. So the, help, the self-induced hevel of envy and greed and competitive rivalry can be mitigated by balancing work with toil, uh, work with rest, 
and by working with and for others. The level of loneliness can be minimized by authentic friendships, by, by not living alone, by being in community. So the bottom line is work is a gift, but also a, a gift from God is rest and friendships, which means you need to prioritize them in your life. Like these aren't things that the, the natural instinct of your heart is to be envious. It's not to, to be in community, to, to work with people, to rest. So you have to prioritize them in your life. Uh, Graham Ogden summarized this section like this. He says, in a world of oppression, of injustice, and of striving, to face life without companionship and support is decidedly painful. Death may indeed be preferable. However, a different perspective is possible if there are others willing and able to share our burden and to participate with us in, the, in confronting this enigmatic world to minimize its frustrations and pain. Think of people like Scott Hutchinson, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, like these people who need true rest and companionship. Make these things of utmost importance in your life. Like single people, how are you uh, prioritizing rest and community in your life? It doesn't come naturally. Married people, how are you prioritizing rest and community and companionship in your life? Just because you're married, it doesn't mean you're not going to be lonely. (laughs) MCs, how are you encouraging each other to rest, to seek companionship, to bear one another's burdens, or are you going at it alone? These things are a gift from God to help you enjoy the labor and toil in your life. Uh, This leads us to the final observation on Hevel in chapter 4. It's the Hevel of politics. So in verses 13 to 16, we have this political scene painted for us. I want you to remember how chapter 3 ends. Um, Last week, chapter 3 ends with the Hevel of justice. Um, um, And... Well, I won't get into it. I'm not going to preach the sermon again. But the answer to that hevel of justice, uh, Lucas showed us, was that Christians don't get discouraged um, because justice is coming. So Jesus is going to return, and true and final justice will be carried out. We have hope in that. So we need to remember that one day God will bring all things to account. And it ends that way. And then chapter 4 begins back with pain, the the hevel of oppression. Because... um, Although the wicked will one day uh, be judged, the oppressed suffer now, like that's Hevel under the sun. And also that should grip our hearts, that should uh, make us righteously angry. We should long for justice. And then he goes on and Kohela unfolds what we just talked about, the Hevel of envy and loneliness. Um, and, and in a way, it's, I think it's very appropriate that he ended with a hevel of politics because although I doubt Kohelet was thinking about our society, we live in a Western, stand-up, democratic, fair society, don't we? Um, and like with all the injustice in the world, with all the heart-wrenching oppression of the poor, certainly politics can help to dissipate the hevel, right? Like it's, it's what our society is built on. It's our silver bullet. After all has been said and done, all the oppression has weighed in on us, and we can't take it anymore, maybe what we really need to do is to rally behind a candidate, rally behind a person who promises to bring in permanent change, someone who has the ideals, who promises to get rid of the oppression, who promises to bring justice. Uh, Do you remember the air of hope in uh, 2008 when Barack Obama was running for president? Like, it wasn't just an American thing. The world like caught fire of this rock star who's going to change the world. And do you remember his speech in Berlin? Where not in America where he's running for president. In Berlin, 200,000 people came to, to hear this man talk about hope and change and, and, and peace. He was even given the Nobel Peace Prize at the very beginning of his time in office. Like he, hasn't, he hadn't really done anything. He was given the prize by the way he talked about these things. And what about today? Like, how different is the world today? Like, maybe worse? Not any different. <laughs> so much hope, so much promise. Um, about the feeling that, of the news and Brexit, like, some people woke up being like, yes, like, finally, this is going to solve our problems. Some people woke up being, like, crushed, like, oh, I thought this was a done deal. So much hope, so much promise of change. 
But we come to this section, and I don't think Solomon has any particular king or kingdom uh, in mind, although it has similarities to David's story and to Joseph's story. Um, I think he's just making an inspired observation on life as it exists everywhere. This is Kohelet's insight on every political scene. And firstly, what I want you to to recognize that um, he does assert that there's one kind of ruler that is better than another. Okay, verse 13, better was the poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who knew, who knew no longer how to take advice. So in the midst of the hevel of politics, don't miss that. Like, there are some rulers that are better than others. Um, so just as the fool overreacted to, to his observations on envy and toil, it's all just keeping up with the Joneses, so he sits back and he folds his hands. Don't do that here. Like, still engage. Engage your brain. Look for the better ruler. Maybe, maybe be the better ruler. It's, I'm not saying if you're in politics, this is all nonsense. And No, engage your mind. But in the midst of all that, remember the wisdom that is set out here. Um, the rags to riches story is about a man who rose from obscurity to royalty. Um, the preacher contrasts a young man who comes from the streets. He comes from a poor background. And you also have an older king who's become a fool. And what makes him a fool is he doesn't have a teachable spirit. And he no longer listens to the instruction or the counsel of the people around him. So the young man comes along and he comes out of prison. He's probably been in prison just for being poor, not for back then. If you just couldn't pay your debts, your debts thrown in prison. And he's got this very common man background and he becomes king. And even though this man was, was born in poverty during the reign of the foolish king, he now finds himself on top. He's the king. And, and with this new, young, much wiser king, change is finally within reach, isn't it? Like, um, Kohelet's observations is that this, this young, common man becomes king, and everyone under the sun rallies behind the new king. There's excitement. There's change. There's hope. Reform is taking place. And there actually seems to be no end to his support. And you might, if you stop there and you follow the story, you might think that maybe politics does help uh, with the hevel of this life. But then immediately we're given a dose of reality. In verse 16, there's no end to all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Uh, uh, uh. Derek Kinder says that uh, the new king has reached the pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. It's, it's yet another of our human anticlimaxes and ultimate, ultimately empty achievements. So there's, there's a long line of rulers before these two guys, and there will be an endless stream of rulers after them. In other words, the, the old foolish king and the young wise king, they're just two tiny blips in the grand scheme of things. And those who come after the, the young wise king has replaced the foolish king they won't necessarily remember the old foolish king, and they might not like the new king, and they'll be looking for someone else to take his place. Why? Because the new king is no more significant than the old king. It's Hevel. The politics under the sun is striving after the wind, ultimately. So what does Kohelet teach us? Some rulers are better than others, okay? For those of us living now, we should want just and righteous rulers. We should, we should vote for them. We should look for them. We should resist tyrants and fools uh, who want to govern us as a people. But before you put all your eggs in this political basket and call upon the government to save us, we need to realize that leaders come and leaders go. Like the great hope for the next election or referendum will also have dissatisfied followers who will again seek a fresh face. Like it's this never-ending cycle. We've been at it for thousands of years. It's Hevel trying to provide significance to life through politics, through political parties, through candidates. All it does is boil down to, in the end, chasing after the wind. Good rulers come and go. Bad rulers come and go. And yet, realistically, the problems that everyone says they're going to fix remain. (laughs) And if good does come about under one person, it's only a matter of time before someone else comes and undoes that good. That's the definition of hevel. So next time you get excited about the next big election prime minister, the next like presidential election, which a lot of people are excited about. Um, I know it hasn't happened here in a while and we don't normally get excited, but even our own local elections, until you get super excited about that, remember this wisdom. 
Augustine says this. He said it really well. He says, the dead are always replaced by the dying. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Let's pray. No, I'm joking. Um, at the end of the day, under the sun, we're brought back again to the kind of truth uh, that helps sustain us. Life is a gift from God. Uh, labor is his gift. Rest is his gift. Friends are his gifts. So don't let the, oppression, the, the hevel of oppression or greed or envy or loneliness pull you away from those good gifts. Don't let politics give you a false sense of hope. No matter what happens, no matter who is elected, life goes on. Life is short. So enjoy the short life God has given you. Work hard. Rest and recreate often. Enjoy life with good friends. These are the good gifts of God. Some of you might be thinking, is that it? Like, surely that just sounds like an advert on TV. Work hard, rest, have good friends, enjoy life. They're a gift from God. Like, it's, there must be more, right? Make sure you rest, okay. Make sure you, 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 make, you, make sure you have companions along the way, okay. Um, don't be like the fool in verse 4, but be wise. But then you might be thinking, what about the king in the end? He seems to do it all right. He's the wise one. He even seems to have plenty of people around him. But in the end, even for him, it ends up being meaningless, doesn't it? And I think Kohelet would say, ah, you're finally getting it, young student. You're, you're beginning to grapple with the complicated things of life. It's not as easy as it is on the surface, is it? He'd say, you're right, because even in this wisdom, even in those better-than Proverbs... The better way to live, even in those good things, there's still a little bit of hevel because we live where? Under the sun. Like right now, we live under the sun where, as we learned, in the place of justice and righteousness, we look there and we, we see wickedness. Where on the side of the oppressors, there's power, where, where, but the, the oppressed have no one to comfort them. But keep reading this book, and you'll see that this time under the sun doesn't last forever. Like, like church Jesus is coming again, and when he does, he will carry out the complete and final justice to the oppressors, to those who stand against him. But he, was, he will also do away with all the hevel of these things that we've learned about. So no longer will you, will you labor out of envy and jealousy of your neighbor. For the first time, you will actually fully experience what it's like to, to work unto the Lord, for his glory, for our joy, for others and not yourself. What about the hevel of loneliness? We're told to seek companionship. Okay, it's better to be uh, with people than alone. Okay, it's how you were made. It's what you were made for. But what about when those companions let us down? Like those companions are under the sun too, aren't they? What about when they turn against us like they did the young ruler, the young king? Being wise, having people around didn't seem to help him in the end. And this is me finished. Proverbs 18:24 uh, recognizes the difficulty of this having many companions. And Proverbs 18:24 says, "A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who clings more than a brother." We read it again. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend. This word friend is literally translated as one who loves. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's one who loves who clings better than a brother. This, this, um, this contrast is between companions and the one who loves. Uh, since the one who loves, this is a, a commentator called Richard Belcher. He, this is what he says about this. And he says, since the one who loves is presented as sticking by the person more than a brother, the emphasis in this verse is on the faithfulness, the faithfulness of such a one, no matter what trials may come into a person's life. Such a one uh, who loves is there no matter what. The contrast is between the faithfulness of the one and the unreliability of the companions. Here, the number of companions is not important, but what is important is having just the one who will never forsake the other. So in the context of Ecclesiastes 4, this companion would be there to comfort in the injustice of oppression. This, this person would, would not be driven by envy of the relationship. 
would not be self-centered and laboring only for riches to satisfy themselves, would be the, the one who gives help in the facing the dangers of the journey, and would not abandon someone when others shift their loyalty to the other. Such a companion is willing to face injustice, to abandon their riches, to stand against the fickle crowds, and even in the face of danger of death for the sake of the other. Christians, your heart should be pumping a little bit. Like this ultimate companion who fits this description is Jesus Christ. He renounced his own self-interest. He put aside the wealth of his glory, faced the injustice of a mock trial, experienced the fickle crowds who one minute acclaimed him and the next wanted to crucify him. He went ultimately uh, willingly to the cross in demonstration of his love for you, the, the one who loves, the ultimate friend. And upon his ascension, he sent the Holy Spirit who will never abandon the one who trusts in Jesus. As Kohelet recognizes, a human companion is a great blessing but even greater is the one whose presence can never be taken away. So take heart. Right now, we live under the sun. Okay? It's not easy. It's not simple. Uh, it's messy. It's not comfortable. In a way, it's all hevel. But praise the Lord, he's given us gifts to help us enjoy this life in the meantime. He's given us gifts to help mitigate the hevel. He's given us rest and companionship to help us uh, enjoy our work and be satisfied in the meantime. But be careful, because even these good gifts are not a reward. Gifts are not the same as reward. They will not truly satisfy that eternity that he's placed in your heart. They're good, they're helpful, but they don't truly satisfy. But listen to me, they're not meant to. They're meant to point to something more. They're meant to point to the one who does eternally satisfy. Gift is meant to... Uh, the gift of rest is meant to point to Jesus, the, one, uh, the only one who can offer true and lasting rest for your troubled soul. The gift of companionship is meant to point to Jesus because he's the most faithful friend that you can ever have, the only one who will never let you down. Even politics, even though we repeatedly mess it up, is meant to point to Jesus because in the end, he's the true and better king. He's the one whose reign will never end. We're told he's the Alpha and Omega. No one comes before him, and there's no king that will come after him. To place your trust in him. He's, he's the only one who can bring true and lasting purpose to your life. And he's done it by offering himself up as a sacrifice for you and for me, by taking our place, by paying our debt on the cross, and by gloriously rising from the dead. It's only through the cross that we find true satisfaction and meaning in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Let's stand. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. We thank you that you are our true companion. To say that you are our friend is absurd. Who are we? to be loved by you. But we thank you, Lord, for your absurd love, for your love that doesn't make sense to us. We thank you that you do love us, that you have befriended us, that you have made a way for us to have true and lasting meaning and rest. So I pray what, what John prays at the end of, of Revelation again. Come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name.